This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio. Honored to be the host of this month's Coaches Call, Coalition of Automotive Management Professionals, normally known as CAMP, Great Coaching Association inside of uh, the North American Aftermarket. With me is Bill Haas from Haas Performance Consulting. Hey, Bill. Good afternoon. Good to have you here, Bill H1317 at gmail.com. Malin Newton is with us, ESI Educational Seminars Institute. Good morning, Carm. Hey, Malin, the author of Joy of Hiring, ESISeminars.com. Murray Voth is here, RPM Training. Hello, everybody. Murray Voth at rpmtraining.net. Hey, guys, welcome. Hey, let's face it, your shop management system is the most critical tool in your shop. And Napa Tracks will move your shop into the SMS Fastlane with on-site training, six days a week support, and local representation. Find Napa Tracks on the web at napatracs.com. We always think about 2024. What are we going to do? What kind of advice are you giving your clients? But Bill... We got together and we always share some talking points so that there's a lot of value in an episode like this for the industry. And, you know, Bill sends us a talking point. His first bullet was, so when will shops stop doing work that they don't get paid for? And Malin and Murray said, oh, my God, that's it. That's that's got to be our topic for today. So, uh, man, let's just set this put this put this golf ball on the tee, Bill. It it just drives me crazy when you're talking to shops and, and they're production's down, their effective labor rate is off. I mean, and they're just, and they're, they can honestly say, but everybody's busy. And we got to get people out of this idea that being busy is okay. Because you can't confuse activity with accomplishment. And that's really what we have to be doing in businesses. We have to be understanding what is it that we accomplished? And in the time that we're here, right? If my technician shows up and he spends eight hours here, I need to be able to measure what was produced in the eight hours he was available. And when you start spending time with some of these shops and digging into some of this stuff and you start understanding where they're spending their time and you're going, did we get paid for that? Well, no, you know, that's a special customer. Well, did we get paid for this? Well, no, you know, the other guys across town, they don't charge for it. So we don't either. I mean, there's there's all these excuses for why they're not putting money in the bank. And it's like, man, we just got to stop it. This is, this is insane. It's crazy. The fastest way to get past your lack of productivity is to understand what are the things you're doing that you're not getting paid for. Once you identify those things, you can do one of two things. Stop doing them or start getting paid for them. That's it. That's your answer. It's so simple. And you brought up a good point, Bill. Most shop owners are so busy fixing cars, they don't even know that that's happening. That's mm-hmm. a good point. Yeah. They're, they're just head down, fixing cars. I'll share an example with you. I went and visited a shop. It's 10 a.m. work day, right? Work weekday. We started at 8, so two hours into the day. Four of the Technicians are standing around talking. So I asked somebody, what are they doing? Oh, they're getting ready to order burritos. And I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, every, every day at 10 o'clock, we send a technician to go to the burrito shop to get burritos for everybody. 
And that's what they did. And then they stood around and they ate the burritos in a group. And what do you think happened at noon? Two they hours later. For lunch. They went to lunch. Every single one of them was late coming back from lunch. And those that came back close to being on time, you know where they went right away? To the what I refer to as the library. So it was actually 12.30, 12.45, we started to work. When I brought this up to the owner, he goes, oh, it's okay. We do that. That's been happening for years. Keep in mind that this shop has six technicians billing for two. And he doesn't wow. understand why he can't pay his bills. Wow. But they're busy. Well, we wow. just had this conversation yesterday with him. <laughs> the two guys that are, I won't call them service riders, two guys that are working the service counter get on the phone call and they say, we're too expensive. We need to lower our prices. And I said, why do you think that? He says, people are saying no. I said, no, what you have here is a lack of salesmanship. When I showed them that since January to December of this year, they had $800,000 of work they estimated and didn't sell. And they're working on 212 cars a month at one hour a car. Their answer is we're too expensive. If we lowered the price, more people would buy. <laughs> because they don't understand the numbers. The owner doesn't understand the numbers. And I'll be honest with you, my forehead was bloody when I got off the phone with them because they just kept banging my head against the desk. That's part of our problem is they don't understand the numbers. They don't know what to compare it to. They don't know what's good. If you look at all the forums, what's the most common question on the forums? Hey, how much do you charge? Yeah. <laughs> you charge I'm doing an XYZ on this vehicle. What do you charge for? Doesn't matter. Charge right. what you need to charge. So I'd like to contrast your comments, Malin, and, and I see that as well, but I like to contrast them with another kind of shop who is busy from eight to six. They start early, they work late, they work through their lunches, they grab a sandwich while they're moving. Everybody's busy moving around cars. Same thing, 250, 300 cars a month. Uh, cars come in, cars go out, right? They're doing oil changes. They're doing winter tire changeovers. They're doing whatever the customer is asking the one thing. And they have all this activity and they still aren't making money and they don't understand. And the technicians are working hard. I mean, they're right. physically moving and driving cars in and out. And their question on the forums is, what do you guys do for will wait appointments? Should I, should I offer them or should I stop offering them or should I do more of that or should I work later or should I work on Sundays and Saturdays because the consumers want that? So on the flip side, and I love your expression, Bill. I, I, I don't have a place to write notes at the moment. I'm going to memorize it, but confusing activity with accomplishment. I've never heard that before. That's just amazing. Um, so that's the other side where they're working and the things they're doing are low effective labor rate jobs, right? So they're doing an oil change, which they're charging $25 of labor or $10 of labor for, but it's taking the technician, you know, 45 minutes to do. And then the question they ask is, well, how do I speed my technician's oil changes up? How, how much faster can you do them, right? No inspections are being done. And so that's another contrast of the type of thing that Malin was talking about, right? So, um, and those advisors are too busy to even think about selling anything right. because it's not even about the price. It's about just processing customers all day, getting them in and out, getting them in and out, right? Like a burger joint. People tell me all the time they're very busy, but they're not making any money. Right, Malin, when you look at their production, right? When you just look at the numbers, the numbers are absolutely the opposite. They, right. 
in their minds, we're busy and you're going, but your production's at 52%. Right. Your production's at 64%. What are your people doing for the time that they're not working on cars that are getting mm. filled? And I think your, your story about the burrito guy, right? It, it's like, <laughs> here's the other biggest challenge that you have in every one of these stores is they will not hold their people accountable. What do I mean by that? They won't have their people punch the clock. They won't right. have them. You started on the job. You finished the job. What time did you start? What time did you end? And it, and if you were doing that and you went to the shop with the burrito scenario and you said, you know, these guys are taking time to go figure out what burritos they want, go get the burritos, eat the burritos. Oh, and the shop owner would say, ah, it's only 10 minutes. Wait, we don't worry about it. It's only 10 minutes. And if they were on the clock, you'd see that that 10 minutes is probably 20, 25, 30, 35 minutes of non-productive, unbillable time. Yes. And everybody's so afraid. The minute you talk to a shop owner about we need to have them punch onto the job and punch off of the job. It's like, oh, no, I can't do that. They'll quit. So on that note, Bill, I've changed how I train that completely in the last, I'm going to say two years or so, where, again, terrified of bringing in time clock management. And uh, so I thought to myself, well, what, what do I want to measure initially? Well, I want to measure waiting for service advisor, right? I want to measure waiting for next job. I want to measure waiting for parts. Who am I actually measuring? I'm actually measuring the advisors and I'm actually measuring management. I, as the technician, am the secretary of the eight hours I represent. I'm going to measure the rest of the people. And I find that I can convince more technicians and owners to get into time clock by measuring the front. And of course, educating the front that they're going to be measured and then start looking at that. And then technicians begin to look at their own times and stuff like that once they get going. They realize that card, just because their name is on that card, not everything that happens on that card is their responsibility, but we want to find out what happened. Another common mistake is, you know, accountants tell them that they're too, he they're too heavy on staff on the front. <laughs> so six technicians billing out two hours, they, they mail in. Um, <laughs> and then two advisors for six technicians. Like, the ratio is way off there as well, right? And not having enough advisors for the number of technicians that we've got is another huge mistake that they make. So anyways, back to you, Bill, on that time clock is I'm getting a bit more traction by teaching people to measure the advisors using the time system. You know, Bill brought up a great point. We hire people. So I hire CARM as a technician. We set zero expectations, zero expectations. Yeah. Instead of saying, this is what I expect of you, and then every pay period saying, this was our expectation. This is what you build. Why? How can I help you be successful? And we don't do that with anybody in the shop. Technicians, service advisors, we're just hiring people that they know what to do. And, and you're right, Malin, and that goes right back to the hiring thing, right? And so we're so desperate to hire somebody that we we overlook so much. Preach it, Bill. When you, Preach it. When, when you have a conversation with a potential hire and you say, so in this shop, we're looking for 90% production. That means you need to bill a little over seven hours in every eight hour day that you work. Can you do that? Oh, yeah, no problem. And then you say, where's the evidence of that? Mm -hmm. There isn't any. It sounds good, but it's all lip service. Right, they're telling you what they think you want to hear. Exactly right. And then we hire them, 
and we never show him or her that they're not achieving what we had talked about. The number one thing that most shop owners hate more than profit is accountability. They don't want to hold anybody accountable. I always think about the willingness uh, of having a client that's willingness to be coached. And and, and I'm sure you guys have struggles with that, uh, coached or advised. And when, when I think about what you just have talked about, well, we can't measure this. I can't change our culture. I can't change our methodology. These are all bad habits. So when someone wants to come to the plate and in the forums, they have nothing but their own personal terrible secret sauce that they can't do all these things because they can't get up and over the the Everest that's in front of them. I can't imagine the difficulty it would be to coach someone to greatness that can't get out of their own way because... I asked someone, says, are you people going to training? He said, well, they won't go to training. Uh, are you doing DVI? No, people won't do DVI. And then my next logical question is, is, who owns the business? And then they look at me like they want to slap me upside the head because I asked such an important question. And something you got to think about. There are approximately 300 and some odd thousand automotive repair shops in the U.S. What percentage are actually being coached? Yeah. I mean, if you took all the coaching companies and all of their clients, it's going to be probably less than 1%. Very so, small. so they'd rather reach out to other people who are doing the same things they are than somebody who sees a much broader spectrum of the business and they have to want to fix it. It's, you know, that's, it's that old saying is, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but they got to want to drink it. Well, and, that's the other thing in those forums, right? There is no accountability. Right. Yeah. That's the well, easy place. That That's just, <laughs> I'll I'll throw out the question and maybe I get three answers. Maybe I get 30 answers. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> but nobody's coming back later to say, how did that work for you? Or what did well, you do? What did you do? How did you measure it? What change did you see? Right. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And, and it was interesting because I get this all the time, you know. Well, that guy over there is really successful and he's doing this or that guy's really busy and he's making money. How do you know that? Have you seen his P&L? Have you crunched his numbers? Well, no, he just, he just looks successful. Well, hey, I could drive a Lamborghini. It doesn't mean I have money. It means I'm willing to go into debt for my ego, right? Yeah. And, and so we have to get down to the brass tacks is if you're going to take anybody's advice or listen to them, they need to be a proven success. And the only way you do that is to look at the numbers. Yeah. One of the things I find with coaching and right now I'm very privileged and very lucky. And I probably repeat this fairly often that I get to work with. I will always say the top 10% mail-in, so maybe I'm going to say I work with the top 1%. (laughs) Um, Generally, fairly coachable people. When we hit roadblocks, you know, we we do stall or plateau sometimes, and we have to, you know, it's on, I think it's on me to, to find out better questions to ask, you know, to find out what maybe the roadblock is or the hesitation. But one of the things that I have found helps quite a few owners over certain humps is I ask them, why did you start your own business? And they'll say, well, to make more money. I says, no, no, like, let's really think about this. What are, what are the, what's one of the main reasons you started your own business? 
And they say, if they really think about it, because I can't work for anybody else, right? Now, as I keep digging, I go, so if you can't work for anybody else, that means you don't listen to leadership. You don't want to follow authority. You don't want to play nice with others in the sandbox. You don't want to share information and toys. You don't want to be held accountable. So you want me to teach you how to help you hold your people accountable when you don't want to be held accountable? <laughs> Something along those lines. And then the light bulb go on and they realize that, oh my goodness, in order for me to hold my people accountable, I need to hold myself accountable and look for people in my life and my world to hold me accountable as well. Whether it's a business coach and or my banker and or my lawyer and or my account and or all of the above, um, holding me accountable so I can have help others be accountable. I, I think that's one of the key things in this industry is they're all they're all anarchists for one reason or the other. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I ask people all the time, why did you go into business for yourself? And there's typically a combination of these three things or all three of these. Mm -hmm. I want to be in total control. I want all the time off. I want to make all the money. Mm -hmm. And I always ask them, how'd that work so far for you? Yeah. <laughs> That's the right question. Because you're really not in total control. Yeah. And because you fix cars, you're not making money because their concept is if I fix the cars, I'll make money. Yeah. And accountability is something you're right. They don't want, you know, they don't want to hold anybody accountable. They don't want to be held accountable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really a matter of finding out what they're trying to accomplish and showing them how they can do that. That's when they start changing their minds, in my opinion. Yeah. They yeah. start listing a little more. Let's face it. Your shop management system is the single most important tool in your shop, period. Napa Tracks was built from the ground up to make your business more profitable and efficient. We provide an extensive set of tools to increase and track profitability in real time. Napa Tracks offers the industry's best post-sale support, hands down, and we train your people on site. Yep, on site. And we offer remote refresher training 10 times a week. And customer support is open six days a week. Give us a call, visit the website, or join our Facebook community today to learn more. We'll prove to you that Trax is the single best shop management system in the business. Napa Trax is always customized and tailored for you, whether you're a one-man shop or a large multi-bay or multi-location company. After all, it's your shop. So, it's your choice. Visit us on the web at NapaTrax, that's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. I was just with a group of uh, independent shop owners this morning in our in our monthly get together. One of them got up and said, hey, I made this big error on workman's comp here in New York State. Uh, I had my service advisors as clerks and they won't allow that because if they ever go into the you know into the back of the shop they have to be charged a technician rate he got a bill for twenty thousand dollars and then the health care issues and how it's being managed and it, just listen to one of hunt's most recent episodes on health care you'll just fall over when you hear the detail behind that and all i kept thinking about in actually in the last 24 hours was the incredible cost of doing business if you don't pay attention to it and think of the people that aren't paying attention to it or just going in every day turning and churning and all that stuff that's creeping up on them because they're not paying attention as a ceo would 
what you guys do as coaches in this industry, I think, are unsung. Yet, you hear in the forums that say all the coaches are telling you to raise their labor rates and they're getting paid to tell you that. And it is it is so wrong because it is more comprehensive than I think people really know. And if you look at the top 1%, they all have coaches. And if not, they're in advisory groups or they're mentors or they're peers or they're in masterminds. And they have said to themselves, I don't know what's around the next corner, but I'm willing to learn. That whole labor rate thing, right? And I think Malin and Murray both have mentioned it. Like you're seeing this in the forums, right? The guys going in there like, hey, what do you think the national average of the labor rate is? Or, hey, I'm charging this much. How how do you think I fit? The guy across town is this and the guy across town is that. And it's like, why is there, what's, what's the point of all this comparison? What are we doing? Who cares what the other guy charges? What we're failing to recognize is that we're not charging enough Period. to pay our people what they deserve to be paid. And to have and to have but, health coverage and to have all the benefits that they should right. they deserve. So and, how come and to nobody's pay themselves. going into the forum and saying, how much do I need to charge in order to meet the profit strategy that this business must have to be successful? Yeah. But nobody wants to talk about that. I just want to compare myself to the guy across the road or the guy across town. And it's just ridiculous. Oh, they're entertainment. That's what they are. They're entertainment. <laughs> That's all they so are. I want to I want to circle back to two things. Uh, one thing that Malin said and one thing that Bill said, guys, if, if you don't mind, I want to tie this somehow to, to what we're talking about. Malin talked about 300,000 locations and then what, what percentage are taking training. And Bill talks about interviewing a technician and saying, hey, we need, we want to bill out, you know, seven hours out of an eight hour day or something like that. The technician saying, yes, I can. I want to, I want to again, give a different perspective. So this is not being argumentative, just a different perspective. If, if a hundred thousand technicians in North America have never been shown how the billing works, if they've been working eight hours a day, busting their knuckles and burning themselves eight hours a day, working hard and they feel good about how hard they work, they think the company is billing out all of their time. So when they come away and get interviewed, they say, yeah, I bill out seven hours out of night because they're thinking I'm there for eight and I have lunch for an hour and I bill out seven hours. So part of it is to think about the fact that we're interviewing people who don't know the answer to the question because they've actually never been measured or been shown how it's measured. So they figure as well by being busy, so get a load of this, right? I'm a technician. I'm working eight hours. I'm assuming that my boss is billing me out at $120 an hour, as an example, right? I'm assuming that. And I think to myself, I'm getting paid 30. My boss is billing me out at 120. I'm going to open up my own shop. Exactly. Because he is making money off of my back. So then they leave. He or she leaves, starts their own shop. And again, not understanding the numbers, opens up, gets busy, and they're in the same boat again, not billing out the full eight hours of the day. So I think there's a couple of other background dysfunctional perspective on these technicians that are causing them. They're not lying in an interview. They literally think they're telling the truth. And I think it's also a misperception that causes so many of these naive people to go into business and hurt themselves, their families and their and their employees. Right. Well, and that's a really good point. I mean, there is a lot of that stuff that we don't know what we don't know where their head is at. Right. But that's why. The second part of that question, remember, was when the technician says, yes, I can do that, or yes, I've done that. Right. My next question was, where is the evidence of that? 
Because right. now I want to know that you know it was measured, how it was measured. Right. Because then if you have the data, you're now believable. Without the data, I won't yeah. believe a word you say. Yeah. And and part of that problem is this is a this is an octopus of issues, right? Yeah. So part of the problem is is the owner of the business doesn't know how to do that. So how do they teach their employees? And most owners are scared to death, scared to death to actually share numbers with their employees. Yep. Right? We we do a class called Business 101 for employees. <clears throat> The average employee has no clue what it costs to keep that business open for a, for a day or a week or a month, right? So they think, in your example, Murray, if I'm making $30 an hour and we're billing $120, $90 is going in the owner's pocket, right? They have no idea that it costs $91 to run the business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and because we're so afraid to share with them the numbers. Yeah. They never learned that. So when they go open their own business, you're 100% correct. Now they have the $91 and they're making 90. Yeah. But nobody's right. ever taught them that because most of us on this screen right now and most people listening to this all started out the same way. We were good with our hands. We like fixing things. We went out, we worked in the industry. We got the entrepreneurial seizure and said, I can do this better. I opened my own repair shop with zero knowledge zero knowledge about business, about operations. And some of these people have been this way for 50 years. And at the end of 50 years, their retirement is to die and they have nothing to sell. They have nothing for their family to continue with because the business is them. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the most frustrating part because we know how hard these people work. They're not lazy people. No, they're just focused on the wrong thing. It's not about fixing the cars. That's what we do. It's about fixing cars and getting paid for it. You know, for people that leave and look back at what they left and thought how easy it was, they're waiting for the Disney magic to work for them. And it doesn't. And to all of your points, it is a lot, a lot of hard work. We did an episode back, Town Hall Academy 210, back in 2021, me and uh, Patrick McHugh on Where the Money Goes. It is a great episode, and there's some uh, corresponding slides yes. that come with it. And it's basically setting up a $100 bill as if it was a million-dollar business and distributing how that bottom line of net operating income actually is created and have people see for real what all these expense issues that we have to worry about and what how gross margin is really made in the business. And it's it's simplistic, but that's a great start for anyone to go to my website and just type in where the money goes and you'll see it. That was a really well done episode. That was Thank well you done. so much. I've actually I think I've written a couple of blogs on it to attempt to motivate people that they've got to step to the plate to all of your points and teach people how we get where we get so that we can have a great business so we can pay people what they're worth. What they well, deserve. What they deserve. What they deserve. Yes. Here's the other side of this, right? You brought it up, Carm. It's the end of the year. We're getting ready for next year. Yeah. Well, I had a guy tell me I spent $30,000 on equipment. All right. Did you factor that into your overhead? Did you change your hourly rate? Did you adjust in any way for it? No, I just bought it. Did you think about buying it or you just went out and bought it on a spur of the moment? Just bought it spur of the moment. 
you didn't pay all your bills last year. How are you going to pay that extra $30,000 this year? Because we didn't plan for it. Yeah. Here's the thing that, that really, you know, drives me nuts with this end of the year and spending money thing is, why are you spending money? Because I can't. And if you think about it, for most of these people, their motivation of spending money right now as we get to the end of the year is, if I spend the money, it'll reduce my tax liability. And that is the worst strategy in the world. You buy things because you need things. You don't buy things to avoid paying taxes. Especially if you don't know whether you owe any taxes or not. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother subject, right? <laughs> yeah. You mean you have to do taxes? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I got yeah. now, I got a call from a relatively new client called me up the other day and just was a little bit excited and said, the accountant just called me and told me it looks like I'm going to have to pay $20,000 in taxes. And he was upset. And I'm like, congratulations. That's fantastic. He goes, what do you mean? That's $20,000. I said, well, the way I understand it, I said, if I look at things right now, I said, there's a little over $100,000 in the bank. Yeah. I said, so that's not a problem to pay $20,000. I said, if you had a $20,000 tax bill and didn't have $20,000, that'd be a real problem. And he was the and, one that didn't didn't have the 100000 the previous year, right, Bill? I think you told me the story. You got it. Yep. Right? So he was upset that he had $80,000 that he didn't have the previous year because he had to share twenty with somebody else. Right. That actually that actually pays for the pavement to bring his customers' cars to his shop, <laughs> along with many other benefits that we get from yeah. from, from yeah. that, right? Like exactly. Well, again, that's that's where our thinking, as Zig Ziglar used to call it, stinking thinking, right? A bigger tax bill means you made more money. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. If you spend it all and don't pay your taxes, that's your fault. That's a bad thing. Shame yeah. on you. Exactly. Shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> And it's very funny because I start talking to people when we project out growth for a year and I say, you know, you're on track to grow 30%, which is about this much money, fill in the blank, $300,000 more. You need to be start, you need to start talking to your tax person about what we do and save money to pay that tax bill. Mm -hmm. And, and they go, Oh, I don't want to pay any taxes. No, you want to pay taxes. That means you made money. Yeah. And, and Bill's right. We're spending money that we don't necessarily need to spend because we're trying to mitigate our taxes and we're spending it on the wrong thing sometimes. Yeah. So think about your guy, Malin. Your guy goes out and spends 30 grand. He comes around in the end of March or April and goes, well, you got a $15,000 tax bill. I don't have 15,000. I just spent 30,000 on a bunch of crap I didn't need. Yep. You know, Hunt talks about it on his show, um, Business by the Numbers, that's on the Aftermarket Radio Network. And Hunt doesn't tell people you're not supposed to not pay taxes. And his objective is to be a very successful and profitable shop. Pay your fair share of taxes because you can and budget for it. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm not advocating that we get carried away. I still want somebody to advise me on business so that I manage the tax amount that I pay. Right. I still want to, you know, keep as much as I legally can, but I think we all need to pay our fair share. But I don't know. I, part of me is thinking, gentlemen, that we should, uh, we should give some of our listeners maybe the, maybe we've got a few of the forum 
keyboardists listening to us that we should give them a couple of pieces of advice on uh, on how to bill for our time before we wrap up today. I, it's it's been bubbling around the back of my mind that I wanted to to circle back to that. I hope that would be okay. I have That's a couple fine. of suggestions. Yeah, go um, ahead. One of the one of the areas that uh, that where a lot of people lose time is by misunderstanding and by misusing labor guides um, is another area where people lose out. So, for example, the book says it is one hour to do those front brakes on that vehicle. So then I charge one hour. Not taking into account that if you would have read the instructions at the beginning of the labor guide, back when there was paper guides, nowadays it's kind of hard, hard to find this information online, it says in there, you need to add time for vehicles that are older, vehicles that display corrosion, rust, and vehicles that are driven in climates that cause things uh, to be seized up. You need to add time for that. And some of the labor guides actually talk about a severe service time in them that would take that hour and make it one three or one four, right? And then there's this whole thing about, well, it says an hour, my technician should do it in an hour. And then they get upset when the tech doesn't, doesn't do it in an hour. Or the tech does it in an hour and the customer comes back complaining because the hub surfaces weren't cleaned and now there's a vibration, right? So they continue to be walking down this path of being in a rock and a hard place of trying to do it faster so that they can sell the job for less money rather than doing the job well, getting paid for the time. Um, and so I've been teaching a concept of key to key, right? So if I live in a climate in Canada where there's, you know, salt put on the roads and rust and corrosion are going to be at play with, with that braking system. Uh, the book time is not going to, uh, is not going to cover me there. So the first thing I'm going to do is look in the book and realize that for my vehicle, it's an hour for the brakes, but it says 0.2 per hub to clean the surfaces. So now I'm at 1.4 and it talks about 0.5 to test drive and burnish the brakes. So now I'm at 1.9. Just by learning how to use the labor guides, I get 0.9 per hour more for my brake job. And then key to key means I got to get in the car. I'm going to test drive it. I'm going to bring it in, set it up on the hoist, do the brake job, take it down, do my test drive, bring it back, park it, do my paperwork, bring in the key. And if I'm a, a really high speed technician and it still took me two hours to do that job key to key, then the advisor didn't sell it for enough, right? We have to start thinking about the key to key process along with these other, those other hints that I gave people listening about those labor guys and understanding how they do that. Now, of course, that does raise the conversation. Well, my customers won't pay for a two hour break job. I'll maybe leave Malin and Bill to answer that one. Good point, Murray. But also take into fact, if that car is modified in any way, yes, it has different sized tires, it's raised, it's lowered, it has aftermarket stuff put on it. That time guide is null and void as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I want to evaluate every car for the car it is. So a car that's leaked oil for 100,000 miles will take longer to repair than a car that doesn't leak oil. Mm -hmm. So you got to evaluate every car. The guide is just the guide. Yeah. And it's wrong. I've looked jobs up and to take the oil pump off a car, which is inside the oil pan on this car, was less that was less time than the oil pan. And when I contacted the labor guide company, you know what they told me? Oh, that was a typo. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, somebody just made a comment in the in the uh I just saw it scroll across the bottom about bake jobs are competitive, just like oil changes are. 
And you can you can have that idea and you can live by that fallacy, okay? But here's the thing. You will always find a customer that thinks because you're in a competitive marketplace that cheaper is always better. If that guy can do it for this, you should be able to do it for that or less. When the customer comes back and says to you, the guy down the street will do it cheaper, your answer is simply, simply this. You didn't tell me you were looking for cheap. I thought you were looking for the best, and that's what we provide. People have got to get off of this whole price thing and start to understand that it's how you present that you are a better value. It's got nothing to do with the price because yeah. that guy's pricing and his profitability are not the same as yours. And so if you want to, if you want to compete at that level with all the price shoppers and being competitive, then that's great. But if you want to move yourself to the next level where you don't have to compete at that level, you just have to put yourself in a position that you understand what your value is and you make sure you're presenting it so your customers and those clients understand that you are a better value. That To me, that's, that's the competitive advantage of why do people want to have the work done at your shop versus the other shop? And if you only leave it to price, they will always choose the cheapest or somebody close to the cheapest. They're certainly not going to choose the most expensive. So how do you present that you're a better value? And, and that's what we lack is the ability to sell the value. Because to a customer, a break job is a break job is a break job. Yep. And, and it's about your warranty. It's also about having a car stop quickly, cleanly, and quietly. Mm-hmm. If you want the lowest price break job, you're not going to get all three of those. But we're so caught up in pricing. And, and you know, it's Bill, it's funny because I bring this up all the time. What kind of tools do you buy? Well, I buy Snap-on. Why? They're the most expect, expensive things out there. Well, because they last for a long time and they do this. Yeah, but you can go to Lowe's and buy Craftsman. Has a lifetime warranty, same as Snap-on. It's a quality tool. But why do you buy Snap-on? Okay, it's convenience. They come to me. All right, that's value, right? Think about the value we bring our customers, the, the convenience of being close to their location, pick up delivery, loaner cars, rental cars, the warranty. We have to stop selling a brake job and sell the package of what we do for them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where we get caught up in that price problem. Guys, I, I want to stop you for a minute because uh, Sidekick 360 basically said that that was bad advice that that, we, that you just gave out. And he also or she said, if you want 20 cars a day, just keep operating that way. So there is, the, the, you know, there's some there's some challenge to the think here. You know, and I'll never forget listening to John DeJulius about you don't give a price to anyone unless the trust you've, you've developed the trust. And they see that you're going to have value. And I'll never forget him talking about the fact that in these particular, it may not necessarily be in the automotive business, but in the hair salon business, they ha- they put up a sign that says, we fixed 1995 haircuts. And, you know, so yeah. so there, there, sometimes you get what you, you pay for. And in our whole real world, we know this to be true everywhere we go. If I could add something, Carm, here's the thing. The shops that want to be that top tier, charge the right amount of money, make a profit, have a legacy that feeds their families, or the person who wants to be the lowest cost person in town, there's a market for it. I did a quick 
non-scientific look at things. And if you look at the number of repair shops in the United States and the number of cars, there is approximately 9,000 cars for every repair shop in the United States. All right. So if you want to be the best, there's a market for you, just like there's a market for Snap-on. If you want to be the least expensive, there's a market for you. Do what you want to do, but understand that there's a lot of different ways to do this. And because what Bill says you disagree with doesn't make it wrong. It makes it different. Right. This is another great comment, guys. Most shop owners are not offering better value. It's a myth. Focus on growth and selling maintenance services, fair pricing and growth. Here's the thing about the cheap or the inexpensive shops. They can't go away. They shouldn't go away because there needs to be a place for the better shops to send the customers that don't appreciate their value. So those shops need to be around. Malin's absolutely right. There is a place for everybody. And when you talk about what is a fair price, I always challenge my clients in the industry to think about what is fair, who determines what's fair. Right. Right. Um, It's, it's values in the eye of the beholder. Um, and so when, when we talk about breaks and as competitive as they might be, I've got clients who spend a lot of time, not only with their clients, their shop, their, their vehicle owners, but also in social media showing why their brake job or why something is their better. So for example, right, they're sandblasting the, uh, the caliper, uh, holders. They're, you know, they're, they're cleaning the hub surfaces. They're, you know, they're putting on painted rotors. I mean, I'm, I'm so out of touch with actual doing brake job because I've been a while <laughs> working on cars. But I mean, there's a lot of fancy, not, I don't know, fancy, but really good quality things you can do. Premium, right? Do the service, has the, have the service advisors ever seen a brake job from a, a pretty done brake job from one of those shops and seen a really good brake job? Does the service advisor actually understand the difference so that they can actually communicate? I mean, the idea that you could give somebody a three year, 100,000 mile warranty on brakes would be 100,000 kilometers, okay? So whatever, 60,000 miles on brakes would be pretty amazing. But in order to give that and have it quiet and like however you said it, Malin, stop quickly, quietly, and something else. Cleanly. Cleanly, right? To have a, to have a three-year 60,000 mile warranty on brakes, you're going to have to do some pretty good work and use some pretty good quality parts to offer that warranty, and it's going to be more money. But here's the thing. If the brake job lasts three years and doesn't get replaced every year like the other brake job, is the person not further ahead, right? And my clients, some of them have been able to talk to people who are might even be financially challenged and show them the difference, and these people have found the money from a family member or somewhere or put it on their credit card and got those brakes done because they finally understood the value of that quality. Never mind what you referenced, Malin, courtesy vehicles, single serve coffee service in the building, fresh cream for your coffee in a little refrigerator, easy to find parking, pickup and delivery, shuttle, like you you name all those beautiful things that we can do for people. There's got to be some value in that, right? But here's the real challenge. Remember what Malin said earlier about the couple service advisors that said, we're too expensive, we need to lower our prices. Those guys are not going to present value because in their minds, it's all about price. The only way we'll get busy here is to lower our prices, right? And that was the conversation I had with them. Until you get over the price, you're never going to be able to sell this work. But let's move away from the break things for a minute, because I think there's another really great example that's worth addressing 
uh, with you guys. And that's, that's this. This is the car that comes into the shop that's got some kind of electrical problem, a check engine light on or something like that, that we've got to put probably our best guy on it, right? Guy that's been, had the most training, the most experience, invested the most money and tools and, and everything else. And then we sell, let's say, an hour's worth of time to figure out why this check engine light is on. And then the technician spends two and a half to three hours on that car to figure out what the problem is. What do we get paid for? Does the shop Mm -hmm. get paid for the two and a half hours or does the shop get paid for the one hour? You know, this is another part of that value equation is we are so afraid at some point to call the customer and say, we have done all the testing for the value we presented when you dropped off the car and we need to do some additional testing and those additional testing will be X. No, we just go ahead and we invest the two and a half or three hours in that car knowing full well that we're only going to get paid for an hour. And then we wonder why we don't make the money we should make. Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No. And Bill, on that note, um, there are many times where the vehicle is extremely challenging. The situation is challenging. Um, it takes all of those three hours of time for that technician to do it. But there's many times where we take a vehicle in and the advisors didn't ask enough questions. The issue is intermittent and the technician still spends two and a half hours and comes back and says, it won't do it. Another flip side of that same situation. So what I've been teaching people these days, I have a, I have a questionnaire that people use on their website or they email it to the client, the advisors send it off, little little Google form or a PDF, a fillable PDF, with questions about the symptoms and the drivability right. and stuff like that. And then this is given to the technician who then has their own feedback form that they're filling in for the advisor as they do their testing. The first line at the very top of that says, have experienced client concern. And the policy in the shops I teach is, is you have... Point two, you have 12 minutes to experience the client's concern. If you do not experience it as described, you're coming back to the advisor for more information and the advisor is going to go to the client for more information. And guess how much time that saves? You've only given away point two at that point, not two and a half. Yeah, well, absolutely. And not only did they spend all that time on it, but they put $100,000 worth of equipment on the car, which has risk also. Yeah. Yeah. We all need to do a better job of getting the information at the service counter because the customers come in, they want to throw the keys at you and walk out the door because they have better things to do. And again, it's who trained who. The service writer has got to train the customer. I need some questions answered. I need to talk with you. And when we talk about value, when a customer comes in the shop and the check engine lights on and we say it's going to be, and it doesn't matter whether it's an hour or five hours, the customer might ask, what are you going to do for that? And we don't have a good answer for that. We need to have a tangible product that says, we're going to do this work for this. And we need to stop talking hours to customers. Your doctor doesn't talk hours. Your doctor says, it's this much money and this test costs this much. And we need to change our thought process. Yeah. And, And diagnostic, inspecting, testing, whatever you want to call it, is a tough one because most of us don't have a tangible product. And your service writer, if I ask you, Murray, what are you going to do on my car when it comes in with a check engine light on? 
doesn't typically get an answer that builds any value. We're gonna we're gonna scan it. <laughs> what is that, what does that mean? You know, I'm old, so scan scanner to me is a movie in the '70s, right? Where people's heads exploded. <laughs> so, so we don't have anything to sell. Yeah, that's there's no value there. Let me let me take a shot at it, Malin. So so Mr. Newton, uh, after we've gone through this questionnaire together here to identify your concern and get as much information for our technician, our technician is going to uh, test drive the vehicle to confirm the symptoms that you've described. Uh, they're going to do a basic visual inspection of all the primary systems. So, for example, fuel, spark, exhaust, vacuum. They're going to do a, a, a examination, preliminary examination of your vehicle. Once they've done that, they're going to do some research specifically from your manufacturer on any technical service bulletins that would be available uh, regarding this symptom. And at that point, we're going to get out our testing equipment and we're going to do a series of tests, which are going to include, but are not limited to. And then we would list off timing, mass airflow sensor readings, O2 sensor readings. And then, Mayland, uh, we're also going to do a, uh, a series of uh, uh, data analysis of your vehicle to look for fault codes to fault in the system to see if there's anything that the computers are telling us to do that. Um, all of these tests today on mainland will only be $295 total with your taxes will be all will be 327. Would I, would you like me to go ahead? That's, I already, that all sounds great, but that's too much to expect your service advisor to memorize and, and, no. and, and then the put next it in a document, that, put it in a document when they ask you, hand it to them and say, this explains exactly, exactly what we're going to do for $295. Exactly, Bill. What I'm, do you have what any I'm questions? Saying, exactly, Bill. That, what I just, what I just did was off the form. No, I, give, I, I, I know I it, but yeah. I didn't want people to get the wrong idea. Right. No, no, exactly. No, no. And now, but here's the thing. Here's I'm the just... next thing that happens because we have a very similar system. We have a questionnaire. We have the the whole build the value. This is the presentation. And so when we ask, they get stuck in this car. Did the client get the questionnaire? Oh, my advisors are too busy to do that. <laughs> and we're right back to where we started. Right. Yeah. Well, and and part of that is process of this is the way we do this. And the other thing that was was not mentioned, but you brought it up earlier, was the key-to-key key philosophy. Forget the hour and a half that we wasted on the car. What about the service advisor's 15 minutes to ask these questions or 20 minutes, write the car up, dispatch the work? I mean, when you look at the guy spent an hour and a half on it, but we've got two, two hours, three quarters into intaking the car, and then we still have to write an estimate, call the customer. We're going to have three or four hours in this vehicle. And we're not going to eliminate any, all of this, but if you put it something in their hands, like Bill was saying, something tangible in their hands, it's different than us talking about it. And most of our service advisors who have technical knowledge aren't going to go through that because they're not, they're not taught that. I, I got to make a comment here because what I'm hearing you all do is preach. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, uh, I, I just love to hear the religion that you have to preach. But I'm not sure you can change the religion that so many uh, have of their very own in the world that they live in with their team, with the way they've conditioned their customers. And I think it seems like it's such a heavy lift for someone to say, I got to find a brand new customer base if I'm going to be super successful and make a lot of money because I've conditioned them. My people 
don't and won't do this. They won't go to training. We won't do this. There isn't the sophistication or the professionalism that I guess I really need to have because I I like what you're saying, but I can't because it's too heavy of a lift. Here's the thing, Carm. I've said this, and I don't mean this as a disparaging remark, is the automotive repair industry is the definition of insanity. We've done the same thing over and over and over and expected different results. And what we need to do is we need to have these people, not all of them, but a group of them that says, stop the insanity. I'm working too hard. I'm working 12, 14 hours a day, seven Mm -hmm. days a week. I don't take a paycheck. I'm tired of this. I need to make a difference and make one little change. You know, it goes back to that saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time with lots of barbecue sauce. And the idea and the reason reason we've preached this, and I think all of us are preaching the same thing, is that we're trying to convert one person to think a little differently. We We have to change the mindset of one shop owner who changes the mindset of one employee who eventually becomes a shop owner. And if we give up, we're doomed. So we can't stop preaching. We have to keep preaching this. And we need, we need people to go, I'm tired of being broke. I'm tired of not having things. I'm tired of my family can't go on vacation because I can't afford to take a day off. On that note, back to what you said, Carm, I've just had a client who I've had before sold their shop, went to the Caribbean for a year, got bored, came back, <laughs> and has now bought another shop. The shop was long, long-standing existence, you know, broke even, made a little bit of money, uh, bought the shop, very underpriced, nothing had been updated for many years, but they were gentle. They were, they were gentle with the clients. They were, they listened to the staff. Um, they worked with, with everybody. Uh, so in the course of about 18 months now, the advisor needed to leave. They were close to retirement anyways, and they, they were given a very, not just legal, but a very healthy severance and a thank you for their service. New, new younger service advisor was brought in. All the technicians are the same. Actually quite excited to work at a place that is now investing in equipment and tools. And 18 months later, the owners are saying, yeah, about half the customers are gone and they've all been replaced. And here's the comments they make. The new people are saying, we didn't know you were here. <laughs> we didn't, because now they're marketing, right? Oh, you guys have courtesy cars. The other shop didn't. Oh, we like your waiting room. Like they're, they're, the new people are, so what happened is, is when you get rid of the people that didn't want to pay, it made room for people who were looking right. for a better experience. And this shop, by any means after 18 months, is still not fully implemented with, with all the stuff that coaches talk about. They're, they're profitable. They're doing well. But, but I'm going to give everybody listening, like you said, Bill and Carm, you can take this at a pace. I have a philosophy with my clients. Everybody works at their own pace. You just have to have a pace. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it's important to keep that moving. And so I want to acknowledge the fact that it does take time for these changes to make and the clientele do change over and, and you do wake up one morning. And then the flip side of feedback. And I think, Carm, I, I'm going to think a lot about this preaching thing because after a while, people stop listening to the preacher, right? Like, I think I, I'm feeling called out here a little bit, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to take that home and think about it. But on that note, I think one of the reasons why Bill and Malin and I and others preach is because we have a whole archive of mail emails 
that say, I paid cash and took my family to Disneyland for the first time in my life. I paid cash and went on vacation. You have saved my marriage. My employees are thanking me. You have saved my business. We have all these emails, right, Bill and Malin, we've, that we've saved on the days that we're tired and discouraged, that we've saved of all these people who have said, thank you, I have been on a vacation. I now have health care. I have this kind of stuff like that. And so when we have those kind of things in our back pocket reminding us, we do come out swinging and preaching because we want more people to come to the altar and have that experience. <laughs> well, guys, uh, it, we're getting really to, to the end of the hour. And the, the, the challenge of me saying preaching is uh, sometimes I just yell at the preacher and say, keep preaching. This is good. You're, we're getting somewhere. You know, we're trying we're trying to drill granite. And we didn't even pass the hat yet. No. <laughs> My point is, is that preaching, I'm not sure necessarily is a bad thing, Murray. Okay. And I love no, to challenge to think about the fact that it's really, I kind of knew the answer to my statement about preaching <laughs> and the fact that there's an awful lot of people that if you're not preaching to them, you're not going to be able to crack them into their new functionality, yeah. their new responsibilities that you are working so hard to groom that way and to change that individual into a much better leader and CEO in the company. And I, I tell you, I just can't imagine the heavy lift, as I was saying, there is for someone who finally puts their their right hand up and says, I swear I'm gonna I'm gonna change and I'm gonna do this. What do you think the prognostic is? Oh, 18, 19, 20 months? Okay, we gotta start somewhere. But that's yeah. our reward. Yes. That's our oh reward. My God, that's yes. what we do it for. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, guys, this was enlightening. Uh, what, a, what a great year end discussion. Uh, we, uh, we, we had an awful lot of stuff coming up here in, so, in, in social media. So thank you for everyone who was on and all the great thoughts and challenges. Even my grandkids. Yeah. We're, uh, yeah. Even your we grandkids. Start yeah, yeah, yeah. We start them early. We start them early. Very good. <laughs> Bill Haas, Haas Performance Consulting, BillH1317 at gmail.com. Mayla Newton from ESI Educational Seminars Institute, the author of Joy of Hiring, ESISeminars.com. And Murray Voth, RPM Training, Murray Voth at rpmtraining.net. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time... 